welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined again by my good friend Terry Teachout to continue our noir series. Today we turn to Out of the Past, Jacques Tourneur's 1947 noir starring Robert Mitchum, Kirk Douglas, and Jane Greer. This is a next step for us after talking about Double Indemnity, the movie that first put together all the elements and all the fundamental conflicts of noir as we now know it. But how do you go from that 1944 to this 1947 movie when the genre has been established? What can you do with it now? So, first of all, thank you for joining me again, Mr. Teachout. And let's start Always talking about the movie. Let's do. Let's talk about the director first, Jacques Tourneur, who is not a household name, except among highly developed connoisseurs of Golden Age Hollywood. But he's a fascinating and in many ways, I think, characteristic director. He is... Uh, on the surface, a journeyman, uh, somebody who got his start in B movies, uh, uh, and someone who even now is not widely recognized as a master because his fingerprints are not so obvious. And he was also extremely versatile out of the past is now probably his best known film, but, uh, he got his start directing, uh, Val Luton's, uh, uh, bottom-of-the-bill horror films like Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie. Uh, He was also extraordinarily adept at westerns. He directed what may be the great Technicolor uh, western, Canyon Passage, uh, and a lovely little film uh, uh, starring uh, Joel McRae uh, about a preacher who is also a cowboy. Uh, He's... uh, He's just a very interesting character, the sort of person one would gladly read a biography of, someone whom I'm not so sure is ideal evidence for the auteur theory of filmmaking. Uh, The responsibility for the quality of his films is uh, widely distributed. And yet you see right from the beginning, right from the main titles of Out of the Past, uh, a very particular and striking way of looking at the problem of what a movie should look like how it should get into action. Uh, Those main titles are are quite fascinating. Uh, Shot over the shoulder uh, as uh, the bad guy drives into town uh, with the credits appearing on either side of him. Uh, A most interesting point of view uh, that transports us into a world we're not expecting to find ourselves in, in a film noir. And that might be the way to uh, get started talking about this movie because out of the past, does not begin in the dark city of Los Angeles or San Francisco. It begins in a small town and it is largely set these first parts of it out of doors. Yes. We have this little place in California, Bridgeport is just someplace people drive through. They might stop for gas or at the diner, but for most people, that's all it is. But there's right. also a little community there and that community already includes within itself the drama of America. Because people move in, people move out. This sort of freedom can bring all sorts of complications that we see here in the person of Jeff Bailey and his little gas station. Just another small business by the roadside of what importance could it be? Across the street from the town diner. Exactly. With with the busybody woman behind the counter who knows everything that's going on in town. Only she doesn't. But we will. Yes, that's one of that's one of the nice touches of this movie is set in motion. She thinks she knows everything about everybody, but she has no idea about the story that Jeff Bailey is about to start telling us in a few minutes. Yeah, 
you have the town gossip and that's a good way, a very clever way for the story to introduce us to the place, to the characters, to their particular conflicts over love and respectability. But at the same time, as you put it, these people really are unaware of evil. Both Jeff Bailey and the man who comes looking for him, posing as his friend, talk around this town gossip woman. They don't want to introduce their dark business to her because it's not necessary, but also you see that she would be weighing over her head. They're deeply ironic because they belong to a different world, more sophisticated and far more cruel. And Jeff Bailey has been keeping secrets from his girlfriend. Uh, a lot of secrets. She is played by Virginia Houston, uh, a, a lovely, fresh, young starlet who, uh, whose career was disrupted when she broke her back. She recovered from it, but never, never got back on the, on the track again. But her, her handful of film appearances are all quite striking. And in Out of the Past, she embodies one of the two archetypical female types of the genre, which is the innocent someone who has fallen in love with this marvelous man, handsome, uh, kindly, uh, but she doesn't know his real name. She doesn't know what he did before he got there. She's prepared to accept him at face value. She simply knows that there are things he isn't telling him. But the narrative mechanism of the film is a flashback in which having realized that he can no longer escape his past, he has to tell her the story. And uh, in between narrative passages, they're driving in a car uh, and we see her face and it's it's quite beautifully handled. You see her gradually realizing that she is in much deeper than she ever imagined. And you also see and Robert Mitchum, uh, the star of this film, is a very great screen actor, uh, a, a great master of economy and the economy that he brings to the storytelling here is that we read off that face without any stretch without any stress without any exaggeration we see how profoundly he disturbed he is that he is going to have to bring this beautiful young woman into the world of knowing of of awareness of what the world is like and it hurts him it hurts him greatly it's one of the many master strokes of his performance that he shows this without making any kind of big deal of it. Yeah, I would say that uh, if there's one thing that defines old Hollywood stars, it's that their art aimed at naturalness, at a certain illusion of artlessness, of making no effort, of not showing off, but instead drawing you into their story and into the moral conflicts of their character and making you believe that what they're going through is something that's deeply human and instantly re relatable beyond the limits of the screen, of course. It's why Mitchum was underrated almost throughout his career as an actor, because unless you really understood how acting works, it would be easy for you to fall into the cliche of saying, oh, he just gets up there and plays himself. Of course, when you see him in another film like Night of the Hunter, you realize that he's he's nothing of the kind. He is a very great screen actor who has a tremendous range, but a part of his range is the ability simply to play with complete naturalism and beautiful simplicity and to project a quality that is contradictory to his physical appearance. This is something that is absolutely central to the success of this film. Jeff Bailey is a big, powerful man. He's so big that he makes Kirk Douglas seem small. And yet 
he is passive. He feels that the world is, is going to overcome him. And he seems to foresee and accept his fate almost from the beginning of the film. Uh, best he can do, one of my favorite exchanges in this film is when Jane Greer says to him, I don't want to die. And he says, neither do I, baby, but if I have to, I'm going to die last. Well, okay, <laughs> fine. That's a, I guess that's a good goal. But it's also a, a very clear indication that Mitchum realizes he is going to die that there's no way for him to get out of this, that he can only try, and we'll talk about this as we go a little further into the film, to preserve some idea of honor in the way that he behaves to the other characters. But ultimately, he's a fatalist. He knows that uh, uh, fate is going to catch up with him because you can never escape your past. You don't expect to see that quality in a man as big and handsome and, and physical as Robert Mitchell, you you expect a different kind of acting, a different kind of person. That is why he was so good at film noir. He was against all type the ideal film noir chump, uh, the guy who who can't get control of his own life, of his own situation, who was going to go down in the last reel. Yeah, that's very well put. And since this is one of those movies that rewards watching it again and again at different times in different moods, one thing you notice after you know the story is that this early setting in a little town and also in nature, you see Bob Mitchum and his girl just sitting by the river. The fish aren't biting, but at least they have this quiet in nature. You begin to think, this guy wants escape. He wants to get as far as possible from the world, from everything that he's been through. And partly that's why he loves the woman, because she has no part in that complicated, dangerous world that he is trying to escape. To an extent, she is the guarantee that there's something else out there for him. That And we meet her before we meet the other woman in the film, Jane Greer who is her inverse, somebody who pretends to be innocent and does it very convincingly in the first half of the film, but who is in fact completely, radically corrupt all the way down to the center of her personality. Uh, once she shows up on the scene, uh, you know, I can imagine somebody saying that they find Virginia Houston a little insipid. You won't feel like that after you spend half an hour with Jane Greer. You'll think, oh boy, this is this is the one he should have gone off with. And of course, of course, he thought so too, uh, but he knew he couldn't. He knew that he couldn't escape his fate, and his fate was Jane Greer and everything that she would bring in her wake. Yeah, the characterization works so well precisely because in the use of flashback, it allows you to see the innocent girl first, and that also establishes something in uh, Bob Mitchum's character. He is the kind of guy who appreciates a good woman, but then it also allows you to compare and contrast with the femme fatale, who also seems frail, vulnerable, maybe a potential victim, and uh, innocent in the beginning, so you get the kind of comparison. But of course, she's very glamorous. The other girl is so simple and plain. And then the complications of that glamour. Yeah. That's one of the differences between Out of the Past and Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity is the film that deals the cards of film noir. And so everything has to be clear and definitional. As soon as Barbara Stanwyck shows up in that movie, I mean, the first thing you see of her is her ankle, and you know what kind of person she is, you know what she's going to be like. There is no deception. I mean, she's deceiving uh, uh, Fred McMurray, uh, 
But she doesn't fool us. We know what she's like. And that's important because we're defining a genre. And one of the things about it that's going to be central is that it's almost always going to have a femme fatale in it. That the central woman uh, in, in the action is going to be somebody who is corrupt. Well, we already know that three years later. We've started to see films like this. Uh, everybody is they're using double indemnity as a starting point. And so we can have Jane Greer uh, show up in the film and play for about half an hour and seem convincingly quite innocent. I've seen, I don't know how many times I've seen Out of the Past. It's one of my favorite movies. But even now, the revelation of her falsity, it still carries the power to shock because she plays it so well. Suddenly, it's as though she's tearing a mask off and we see one layer further down into her blackness. Uh, you couldn't have gotten away with that in 1944 because you were still defining the film. That's the difference between... Uh, a definitional film like like Double Indemnity and an archetypical film uh, like like Out of the Past, where the rules are set and we understand them and we come to the film with a basic knowledge of, of how this kind of movie will work, which gives Turner and, and uh, Daniel Mainwaring, the screenwriter, a kind of freedom that Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler didn't have in 1944. Uh, they had to make the rules. Uh, later on, we can play with them. Yeah, exactly. You see that the establishment of genre allows for more subtlety and new kinds of surprises that reveal something that essentially was already there, but only potentially, not actually. And uh, so you see one way of working through this uh, doomed love that typifies noir. And Bob Mitchum also excels at that, uh, surprisingly enough. As you pointed out, his passivity is what allows him, although he's a detective and a man of action, to function as a narrator. He's not in charge of events. He's the kind of guy who takes orders, doesn't give orders. And we see with him, even in his flashbacks early on, this sort of characterizations, he listens when others talk. He's not the guy who tells you like it is. Um, and that's one. That's the sign of a very good actor, too. Yeah, actors. Uh, John Wayne always used to say that he didn't act; he reacted. And uh, Mitchum has also internalized that great wisdom. He knows how strong his personality comes across on screen. The way that Gary Cooper also knew that, and so he knows that he doesn't have to act like Clark Gay or not, not Clark Gable, like 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 Kirk Douglas. You know, Douglas is one of the great scene stealers. He wants to seize your attention as soon as he's in the frame. Uh, he will actually engage in, in, in scene stealing behavior. Uh, but Robert Mitchum knows that it's not going to matter, that all he has to do is stand there. And sooner or later, you're going to be looking at him, not at Kirk Douglas. Uh, when you have that kind of strength, you can do a lot of different things with it. And one of them is to play a passive character. Uh, somebody who seems strong but really isn't. Here's where the screenplay is is most helpful because uh, not only does Mitchum have all the best lines, but many of them define this sense of passivity. Uh, another exchange that I really love is when he and Jane Greer are talking uh, early in their relationship. Uh, they're they're gambling, and she, she says, "Is there a way to win?" And he says, "There's a way to lose more slowly." Boy, if that doesn't define what Out of the Past is about, uh, right there, uh, that's a signal. Although if you're seeing it for the first time, you won't receive it as such. But that's a signal of what's going to happen. He knows somewhere in there that he's going to lose 
all he can do is delay the inevitable end. Yeah, these there are all these elements of the story that function both as characterization and as foreshadowing what we as modern people call tragic irony. It's only too true. It's perhaps more true than the character realizes himself when he says it, but he'll realize in the end. And uh, this again adds to the uh, embarrassment of riches that is this story and why it's worth seeing again and again and why it keeps coming back after generations. And indeed I learned from you that this was not a smash hit nor beloved of critics as it came out of the gate. It, it took a long time to build to its reputation now. Right. That really surprised me. I saw the film before I knew much about its, its reception history. And then I looked up the reviews. Uh, Bosley Crowther in the New York Times, who was famous for getting great movies wrong, uh, had no idea that this was anything other than just your basic B-flat shoot 'em up The guy who really got it wrong was James Agee, somebody else who, when you look at his work in its totality, you realize that he was actually quite tone deaf about certain kinds of films. He was so uncomprehending of the virtues of this film that he thought that Robert Mitchum, as he appeared in Out of the Past, was not particularly attractive to women. An utterly laughable notion. Uh, and <laughs> years, isn't that preposterous? And years later, Pauline Kael, somebody else who uh, uh, didn't always understand what she was seeing, basically dismissed Out of the Past as, uh, you know, a pretty good film of its kind. It's really, I think it's really only been in the last 25 years or so that as our appreciation of film noir heightens, as as the culture changes in ways that make us more receptive to what film noir is and what it has to say about American life, uh, people have started to recognize just how good Out of the Past is. Uh, part of the problem was that it was very late in coming to home video. Uh, it's only been in the last 10 years that it's been available on DVD. But now it gets shown pretty regularly on television. Uh, it is readily available on home video. And you can see it more than once and realize how complex it is. But boy, oh boy, the critics who first saw it, they didn't have a clue. They just thought it was another one of those Hollywood movies about good guys and bad guys. Uh, there's a book to be written someday about the reception history of film noir. And what you're going to find when you write it is when it gets written is that very few people understood that they were seeing something unique, distinctive, that decades from then it was going to be regarded as one of the great things about post-war Hollywood filmmaking. Uh, nobody had a clue. It was just another movie that you saw on Saturday. Yeah, I think partly that's because people hold popular stuff in contempt, and there's a sort of class contempt for movies that aren't uh, prestigious by design, and partly I think it's the, there's a kind of blindness to these all-American phenomena. The noir combines all sorts of techniques brought over from Europe, from Germany especially, of course, with all sorts of American things like the experience of men in World War II and the new seriousness that brought to moral phenomena. And on the other hand, the, the post-war American freedom uh, the, the new mobility, the new hopes, and uh, the new tragedies that often play out in California. And the new sexual freedom as well. Of course. You know, nothing is said, if I remember correctly, nothing is said in Out of the Past about whether or not Robert Mitchum's character served in the war. But we know from other uh, noir-type films that he made, uh, especially Crossfire, 
uh, that men like him would certainly have served in the war. And of course, Robert Mitchum's first great starring role was in the story of G.I. Joe when he plays uh, Ernie Pyle's Captain Waskow. Uh, so I, in a way, if you know a lot about film of the period, you're going to bring that knowledge to out of the past and you're going to take it for granted that part of Robert Mitchum's past, part of his life, probably was that he was over in Europe or, or in, in the Pacific and that he saw things that changed him that disillusioned him, that caused him to realize that uh, just because you're a, a, a big, strong American doesn't mean that you necessarily have control over your life. Uh, and yet we don't need to have that made explicit in the film. Uh, that's another one of the things that I like about Out of the Past, that there's nothing heavy-handed about it at all. Uh, Crossfire is a wonderful movie, but it's very heavy-handed. Um, uh, Out of the Past has an extremely light texture, which brings us to Roy Webb, who wrote the score. Uh, Roy Webb, uh, uh, one of RKO's house composers, one of the great and underrated uh, film composers, scored any number of, of film noirs. And uh, he could write very tough, very dissonant scores. And there are tough, dissonant passages in his score to Out of the Past, but that is not the feel of the score. The feel of the score is romantic. Uh, it makes use uh, of a popular song of the period, The First Time I Saw You, used exactly the way that the Laura film is, Laura theme is used in Laura. Uh, it comes back over and over again. Robert Mitchum even whistles it at one point in the movie. Um, and what it is telling us is that the center of this film is Mitchum's relationships with the two women. That he is a person who believes in love. And unfortunately, that belief is going to bring him low. It is part of, uh, maybe this is not the right word, but I can't help it, but use it. It's part of his naivete. Uh, the key to being a film noir chump is that you're naive about women. Uh, you may see them in a condescending way. You may see them in an idealized way. You may see them both ways. But above all, you are not realistic about them. You don't see them as independent actors who are capable of making decisions in their own interest only. Uh, and that's why he falls for Jane Greer and never sees it coming until she pulls the gun and blasts somebody. And all at once, it's like throwing a switch. Uh, uh, you, you see who she is and he sees who she is. Uh, she's talked about uh, uh, Turner's direction of her. And he didn't give her much direction. He just said, look, in the first part of the film, uh, you're innocent. In the second half of the film, you're not. Show that. That's what he wants to see. And she shows it with great simplicity uh, because she is a beautiful woman. She's an interesting-looking woman. Uh, she doesn't look hard in the way that Barbara Stanwyck can look hard. But when the innocence is shut off, that face becomes closed and, and ruthless. Yes. And she's also quite good at showing fear when she realizes that she, she doesn't have control of the situation either. Uh, she didn't have as much of a film career as she should have because she ran afoul of Howard Hughes, which is a story for another day. Uh, but every film she made, she made a strong impression. And it is the reason why we remember her much more clearly than we do other women stars of the period who got the deluxe star making treatment, but who are just not very well remembered because they weren't as they weren't as good as she was. She 
she was a actor and she gets the probably the best chance of her career to act in this film and she uses it she's up against quite a cast you know i mean mitchum and and uh uh, Kirk Douglas, uh, a whole flock of scene stealers, uh, uh, and yet you remember her just like you remember the rest of them. Yeah, and I would say that the there is something in the overall achievement of the movie that even after you're done with the story and you're brought to this moment of perplexity of how terrifying things can end, then if you go back to it another time, you will still fall for her. Yes, that's I, I, I screened this film last night because I hadn't seen it in a couple of years. And all over again, I bought her. You know, of course, I know every beat of the film. I know what's going to happen. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I might have been reading the script. And yet you're swept up into the, the continuity of her her beauty, her attraction, the fact that Mitchum is so responsive to her. Uh, even if you know what she's going to do, you still buy her. And if that isn't a good definition of, of first-class acting, I don't know what is. It's when you see it the second time and you realize you're still not seeing the gears shifting, uh, that, that she's, she's completely present. Uh, you believe in her during the immediate experience of watching the film. Part of that has to do with the way conflicts are staged in the story. Uh, Kirk Douglas and uh, Bob Mitchum start out in a fairly hierarchical situation where both of them make a point that Douglas is the one talking and Mitchum is listening. And this continues in various ways up until you get this sort of sense of what an aristocratic pretense Kirk Douglas has in this story. He says that nobody quits me. I fire people, but nobody quits me. He's a master. He's not just an employer of private detectives or what have you. He feels he's a master. And he's got a shady criminal empire, the edges of which keep coming into the story here or there, but never the full uh, spider web of it, so to speak, never the full layer. And he's the kind of guy who feels comfortable dodging taxes and the government because he feels he's got uh, crime down to a science. And so you can see why his confidence is there. With Mitchum, his confidence is mostly not being bullied around but also not rising to the bait and starting a conflict. There is one moment when he asserts his democratic American manliness. He says, look, I came up from nothing, but uh, I grew up eating and I'm just as tall as you. There's... Yes, yes. That, and that line is, is reflected in the very careful staging of every shot in which the two men appear. Uh, my favorite one is the one in which... Uh, 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 Kirk Douglas shows up without warning at uh, Mitchum's ho in ho Mitchum's hotel room in, in Mexico. And he opens the door and we see him framed in the door with Mitchum in the foreground. And you look at him and if you haven't noticed it up until now, it's going to hit you. You think he's so small. He's a small man next to Robert Mitchum. Uh, this is an aspect of Kurt Douglas that we don't think about because he later became a great star. He didn't do a, a second billing roles very long. Uh, and yet in both of the, the best remembered ones that he did, which is this film and The Strange Love of Martha Ayers, he is weak. He seems very strong in this film, but he's not. Uh, he is also at the mercy of Jane Greer. Uh, and 
uh, and of course, in The Strange Love of Martha Ivers, he's a he's an alcoholic who was destroyed by his own past. He was quite good at, at getting across this kind of interior weakness uh, beneath the braggadocio. We didn't see as much of it as we would have liked to in his later career, because that's not what a movie star does. But it's a pleasure to see him do it here. Uh, he seems very powerful. He seems to be the man with the upper hand. He seems utterly self-confident. And yet, why is he doing what he's doing with Jane Greer? If he had any sense, he'd just have her killed. No, he wants to bring her back. He must dominate her. Well, that's weakness. Yeah, that's weakness. there's another bit of serendipity in his acting. The fact that he has a tendency to steal scenes works perfectly with his character's psychology, who al al mm. always feels that he has to show he's on top of the hierarchy. And, uh, and and that plays so well against his his physical type. He's got a strong face, but he's not that big a guy. He always feels like he has to stand up and puff his chest. And that yes. makes for very good contrasts with Bob Mitchum, who is so laid back. That's a and very relaxed. good way of putting it. Uh... <laughs> and so there's a sense of hierarchy here between them at first, and then a competition. And you see that with men, there is this sort of potential for equality. And a lot of the conflicts between men in this story have to do with seeing each other as competitors. Jeff Bailey and his partner who turns to betray him, Jeff Bailey and Kirk Douglas, Jeff Bailey and Kirk Douglas's henchmen as well because they have a subplot. So you see that that is typical of men, competition. They will inevitably step on each other's toes and this will come to a showdown. And it is part of the genius of the movie that the showdowns are actually of very different kinds. And they're not really resolved mano a mano in a macho way. That's just part of the greatness of noir. It has a lot to say about manliness, but it doesn't put men at center everywhere, and sometimes not even in the climaxes. No, that's right. But that's why these characters look for something else in women. They're looking for a part of life that isn't about competition anymore. They're looking for a hiding place. They're looking for safety. Uh, he, uh, Mitchum is very much doing that for, with Virginia Houston. Uh, but, uh, of course, he wants it with Jane Greer, too. I mean, he's gotten himself into a situation with Kirk Douglas, which he doesn't like. He doesn't like Kirk Douglas as a man. He doesn't want to be uh, secondary to him. He doesn't want to be at his mercy. Uh, so he's going to take Jane Greer, and they're going to hide from the world together. And, of course, it is his naivete that causes him to think that she is what she seems to be and that she's prepared to do what he wants. And boy, is he going to get fooled by that. You were talking about scene stealing, and I have to tell you a wonderful story. This is, Out of the Past is a fabulously well-cast movie. Paul Valentine, or Valentine, I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Uh, he's uh, uh, Kirk Douglas's uh, aide-de-camp. I'm not sure what you want to call him. Uh, and the three of them were in a scene together. And uh, Mitchum is talking, and Kirk Douglas starts engaging Kirk Douglas is in the background of the shot and he starts engaging in the kind of scene stealing behavior that is intended to draw your eye away from the main character at that very moment uh, Paul Valentine picks up a newspaper and starts folding and unfolding it and Turner uh, 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 called cut and he went over to Valentine and said Paul you too <laughs> Subtle, but it's there. <laughs> yeah, there's your there's your competition. It's actually played out in the real life. Um, now, Kirk Kirk Douglas is a is a funny character. I mean, you wouldn't. 
we often find when you meet famous stars or you see them photographed in a way that gives you a chance of seeing them in the perspective of the real world, they tend to be short. It's quite unusual to see a, a golden age Hollywood male film star who is as big as Robert Mitchum. Uh, and uh, small wonder that somebody like Kirk Douglas uh, uh, should engage in this kind of behavior. He did exactly the same thing when he shared the, shared the stage with uh, John Wayne in The War Wagon. Uh, uh, he was going up against somebody to whom the eye always went. And so he made every possible effort uh, to seize attention. And that didn't bother Wayne in the slightest, slightest, because he knew what he was. And he knew that as soon as uh, the little dog in the corner stopped yapping, your eye would go right back to him. Uh, Mitchum has the same kind of confidence here. Yeah. And so it's it, that's what makes it possible for him to drive the movie through so many changes of scenery and of tone. Of course, he's got the music, he's got the wind at his back in the score, so that if it's got to be a romantic day in nature, that's what you're going to get. If it's got to be a different kind of romantic night, losing himself to passion against his better judgment in Acapulco on the beach, you're going to get that version. This versatility allows, again, for sparser characterization that's more persuasive because it seems to come out of the character sort of against his will, brought out by events, properly scored. Yes, which brings us to the cinematography. No discussion of Out of the Past or of film noir generally is complete without spending a few minutes talking about Nicholas Musaraka. He is one of the defining characters in creating the look of film noir, the high contrast, shadow defined backgrounds of these films. Um, in Musaraka's world, uh, it's, let's just say that the idea of colorizing a movie like Out of the Past is so outrageous that I don't think even at the height of colorization, anybody ever seriously considered it. Now, this is a movie that is all about shadows, a movie in which uh, the key light makes you burst out of the frame because you're standing uh, in a world that is mostly darkness, uh, never more memorably than in the scene uh, on the beach early in the film when Mitchum and Jane Greer have that first clinch. And uh, uh, I'm pretty sure that is not shot with rear projection, by the way. That looks to me like a location shot. Uh, but it's all shadows uh, because Musaraka knows that he can get away with that. When I uh, directed a play of mine uh, called Satchel at the Waldorf a couple of years ago at Palm, Palm Beach Drama Works, I was working with a really superior lighting director named Kirk Bookman. And um, if you're smart, uh, when you're working with a lighting director of that quality, you don't pretend to know more than you know about lighting. But you do try to make clear that you know what you want. And uh, in that play, there's a scene at the very end that takes place at, at, at two or three in the morning, uh, in which one of the characters is making a, a really shocking confession about himself uh, in, an, in an office in Midtown, New York. And I said, Kirk, I want you to light it like Nick Musaraka. And he just looked at me and grinned and, uh, you know, made a few magic passes over the lighting board. And all of a sudden... That stage was full of shadows and Venetian, <laughs> Venetian blinds and pools of blackness. And everybody in the lighting business knows who Musaraga was and what he did. 
Uh, I'm sure he did all other kinds of lighting too. But what it is that we remember him for is movies like this. And this is a film in which that built-in contrast between the outdoor world of innocence and the indoor nocturnal world of, of fatal knowledge is so important, so vital. Uh, it is because Out of the Past starts and ends in the world of fully lit daytime innocence that the terrible things that happen at night uh, uh, land so hard. There's, if I'm Again, if I'm remembering correctly, there is only one killing that takes place outdoors during the day uh, in Bridgeport, uh, where uh, uh, one a guy who's pursuing Mitchum is done in. And that single moment is all the more shocking because it's happening in the world that we also do not want to be invaded uh, by fatal knowledge. Um, uh, and Musaraka lights that correctly too. You know, I mean, he's just as good at shooting the outdoors. But yeah. it's the con- it's the contrast that makes the film. And, and that it. scene, just uh, up until then, we had seen the rivers, lakes, mountains, forests as a place of repose and peace, because human evils are not there. But then you see this moment of a man who dies falling off a cliff, and all of a sudden you get this other sense of nature, the immensity and the indifference. And you can see how the music and the cinematography is just keyed in to bring out the sublime aspect of things all of a sudden. It's quite gorgeous. Boy, that's the right word. It it is the sublime that we're seeing. Uh, California is a beautiful place, lest we forget. And... uh... Uh, you in most film noir, you don't know that. Uh, you see the dirty streets, and the only other film noir I can think of that that makes use the major one that makes use of this kind of contrast in a similar way is uh, 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 *On Dangerous Ground*, uh, which is structured in a different way. It starts in darkness and then moves up the mountains to a world of of, of innocence and snow that has been. Uh, betrayed by the presence of a, of a young of a young emotionally disturbed murderer but in both films uh, that contrast is absolutely central to the structure of the film out of the past is quite a complex piece of of, of filmmaking architecture by the way um, it's done so well so clearly that we never get confused by it but you are being whipped back and forth in time uh, throughout the first half of this film um, in a way that if the storytelling were less clear would throw you right off the track uh, just like you get thrown off the track in the big sleep nobody you know nobody really knows what happens in the big sleep you know even the screenwriters didn't know what happened but you always know what happens where you are and what time it is and out of the past no matter how elaborate uh, the uh, uh, film the film's flashbacks have become you are fully oriented, which is a tribute to the high quality of Daniel Mainwaring's screenplay, adapted from his own novel, Build My Gallows High, um, which he wrote under the pseudonym of Jeffrey Holm. Um, it, too, is different from Double Indemnity in a very interesting way. Uh, one of the things that we remember first about Double Indemnity is the wisecracks, uh, because they just fly. Uh, they're, they're flying past us just as they would in a Raymond Chandler novel, because you had two of the great wisecrackers uh, of American uh, movies and literature, Raymond Chandler and Billy Wilder. Uh, There are wisecracks in Out of the Past, obviously, uh, but they're not what you remember 
Uh, what you remember is the sharpness and speed of the dialogue, but it's the tone of elegy that stays with you, the tone of the recognition of fate. Uh, and uh, like the, the, you could say that the dialogue that I quoted earlier in the podcast, uh, that's sort of structured like a wisecrack. You know, if I've got to die, I'm going to die last. But there's nothing wisecracky about it at all. It is rather a recognition of the terrible truth of life. We're all going to die, and all we can do is lose more slowly. Um, yeah, it's far less show-off, and I think part of that has to do with the way flashback is employed. In Double Indemnity, you get so many wisecracks because the narrator enacts his own tragic irony along the way. He's at the end of the road. Whereas here, flashbacks stop, and then we get to uh, action, then we get to performance, so we, we get to see the, the conflict play out between the dark past and the seemingly beautiful present. And when once we, we get up to speed, all of a sudden suspense hits in, and that just brings out the depth of all the sadness, of all the elegiac tone in Bob Mitchum's expressions, in the way he talks, in the things he says. You just get the sense more and more that he was doomed. That you could almost, yeah, you can almost forget that Out of the Past is a narrated film. You can never forget that Double Indemnity is a narrated film. Uh, Fred McMurray's narrating voice is is at the dead center of that film. Uh, it, it's never very far away, uh, and it's central to the film's effect. Uh, yes. Of course, uh, Mitchum's uh, flashback narrations, they're very important in this film. But you don't think about them. They do not draw attention to themselves. Uh, it would have been possible, although difficult, to structure the film in such a way that it didn't contain narration. Uh, and it's because of his easy, unforced manner that they go down so easily. I mean, he's telling us terrible things about himself, but there's no sense of anguish or horror about it. It's just, well, this is what happened. Yeah, he has a strange capacity to separate his manliness, which in the story shows up as taking responsibility for everything he's been through, and on the other hand, his narration, which reveals to what extent he's aware that things just happened. It wasn't his doing, things just happened. He's not really all in control, even in his own story. Fate is a more important protagonist than he himself in his own story. I can't think of another actor of that period who could have brought off that role and what he has to do in it more perfectly than Robert Mitchum. Uh, I've written a, a fair amount about Mitchum. He fascinates me. He was himself an oddly passive man. He did not take responsibility for his career in the way that, say, James Stewart did. Stewart was extremely responsible for his career and thus left behind a very large number of, of first-rate films. Uh, Mitchum would do pretty much anything that was offered to him for money. He knew the difference between good and bad. And when he got something good, uh, as in this film, as in The Night of the Hunter, as in Farewell, My Lovely, uh, or The Friends of Eddie Coyle, he gave of his best he ran with it. Uh, if it was something else, then he he did a professional job because he was a professional. But he was perfectly happy to make whatever kind of movie he was offered. Um, that is the tragedy of his career. Uh, when, when we talked about Night of the Hunter, 
uh, we talked about uh, Charles Lawton saying that he thought that that Mitchum actually had the capacity to do Shakespearean roles, that he was that good an actor. And I agree with that. Uh, I think there's an enormous amount of untapped potential in him. It is because of his laziness. Uh, but that makes him particularly good for playing Jeff Bailey, uh, somebody who is on the conveyor belt uh, to hell and who never steps off it, who never takes any concerted action to change the course of fate. Uh, he doesn't want to be the fall guy, uh, but I think he knows he can't help it. I have a, a feeling, I, I, watching the film last night, I was thinking to myself, I can imagine interpreting out of the past uh, in this way, that Mitchum dies self-knowingly to do two things. One is to rid the world of Jane Greer, and the other is to protect Virginia Houston from the knowledge of the world as it really is. He feels, uh, this is just my interpretation, nothing more than that. Maybe it's all really fancy. But I just get the feeling watching the movie that he knows that there's nothing left for him. He can't have a better life. He can't go back to Bridgeport. Uh, what integrity has he beyond uh, dying last, losing more slowly? And the answer is that he can go down having done right by the evil woman and the good woman, which brings us to the very end of the film, one of the most striking moments in all of film noir, maybe in all of Hollywood. Uh, uh, the Holocaust has happened. He's dead. Jane Greer is dead. And we're back in Bridgeport. The sun is up. Um, everybody has to live with uh, the consequences of what's going to happen. And Virginia Houston goes to uh, Dickie Moore, uh, a young man who's been working in Jeff Bailey's gas station. He's a deaf mute. Um, but Dickie Moore was a, a young, silent film child actor, by the way, who uh, uh, this this is his most noteworthy uh, sound film. Uh, how interesting that he plays a deaf mute and does it beautifully and sensitively. And she asks him uh, earlier in the film, uh, she has said to, to uh, Mitchum just before she sends him in uh, to meet with Kirk Douglas for the first time. Uh, she says, you, you go back. And you take a look at this Jane Greer and you see if maybe you still love her. And if you do, all right, that's just the way it is. And if you don't, then you'll know and you can come back to me. It's the end of the film. She can never ask him this question, but she thinks maybe Dickie Moore will know. And she asks him, um, was he going back to her? And Moore uh, is silent. You can see he's trying to decide how to answer this. And then he signs to her, uh, he was going back to Jane Greer. That is an incredibly beautiful moment because it releases her to go back to the world in which she belongs, the world of innocence. And although this point is not made in the film, you can imagine Robert Mitchum saying to Dickie Moore the last time he sees her, Look, if this all goes south and I get killed, this is what you have to tell her. I can also imagine those two characters having known each other so well uh, that Dickie Moore understood that this was his duty. This was the only, this was the last thing he could do for this very nice woman. 
yeah, uh-huh. this girl has had her life torn apart almost because her parents hate the guy because he's so shady and then it turns out that their worst suspicions are confirmed and indeed overmatched. But she goes against them. She's she's separated from her own parents and her own community because of love. That's what love does. It breaks the law. But Mitchum wouldn't have wanted that. And certainly his friend, this deaf-mute boy who turns out to be quite smart and who is important to a couple of parts of the story, he knows this and he knows that this girl has a boyfriend. There's somebody waiting to marry her now that Robert Mitchum is dead. She could have a good, decent life and some shot at happiness. And so he tells the lie that is needed to tell. And there you see that this deaf-mute boy was the guy who's closest to Jeff Bailey, not just because he was his man at the car shop, We already saw that he's the guy who saves his life. He's the guy who's willing to kill a man for his friend, to save his life in defense, admittedly. Still, he's willing to take this responsibility, and indeed, being deaf-mute, he does so wordlessly. He is the embodiment of what's innocent in Jeff Bailey. He's a good man. And And he enables Jeff to fulfill his, his last possibility for an honorable act. Uh, This is a tragic film, incontestably so, but Jeff Bailey goes down honorably. He he saves the world from this monstrous spider woman, Jane Greer, but he also makes sure uh, that Virginia Houston will be released from his spell, you could call it that, to go on if she can and lead her life. Uh, That's a really... That's not just some shabby little shocker of a Hollywood thriller. That is a really noble moment, a noble dramatic moment at the end of this film. Yes, indeed. And having this there, that there is this one thing that relieves tragedy or that allows honor to be efficacious. This thing that the man had wanted for this woman he loved, whom he keeps out of harm's way, it will get done. There will be somebody to see that through and to prove that there is this one relationship between men that doesn't sour that doesn't turn to misery there is this mm-hmm. one element of goodness between men and that uh, th- that comes out to, to put a wrap with at least a bit of a happy end the smallest bittersweet happy end to this series of complexities as you pointed out there's innocence and experience in the romantic mood there is america and then south of the border where passions run wild which they often did in 30s and 40s literature and movies and then within america this same contradiction is reproduced between the city of corruption of intrigue of misery and this other world of the small town with honesty work community and, and all these other possibilities, including marriage, if not for Jeff Bailey. Right. I'll tell you what's tragic about this movie. She will never know that he was honorable at the end. We know. Dickie Moore knows. She will never know. She can never know. That is his ultimate act of self-sacrifice for her, is to let her think that he was a bastard. That's tough. That's real drama. And it would fit perfectly, however, with her parents' stern moral condemnation, with the town gossip's desire to show that other people are sort of wicked. You can't take it away, you know, small towns aren't perfect. They have their own moral limits, and seeing the greatness in a fallen man is not one of them. No, it sure isn't. It sure isn't. 
what an extraordinary movie. How amazing that it was not received as such when it came out, but how unsurprising, too. Uh, the critics of the 30s and 40s, with one exception, uh, Otis Ferguson, did not see the dramatic integrity of popular filmmaking in Hollywood. They weren't alert to it. You said this in a way earlier, it was like a kind of a class bias. They didn't understand that popular storytelling can be like this, can be this good. They didn't see what they were, they didn't understand what they were seeing at all. Right. In, in that time, this uh, difference was stated as, you know, you acted, but did you act on the legitimate stage? Were you Hollywood or actually in theater at this Broadway or perhaps London? And there was a, an assumption that if you were in a play, if you were a theater actor, you were superior. It was a superior form of storytelling. It took a long time to change that, but in certain ways we live with the same problem nowadays. And I think ultimately the reason is an unwitting conspiracy. Critics don't want to concede the touch of greatness in these stories because it would mean they would have to learn from directors and writers and actors rather than talk about them expertly. And on the other hand, the audience that might love these movies or learn to love them in time also doesn't quite want to square with what they would be learning. And they would be learning it because to love these movies is to be moved emotionally by what these characters are doing. And therefore to admit that, yep, it's plausible, I understand it. There's a place for it in my heart. It's part of human nature. And that would mean to admit all these moral complexities and the potential for tragedy that the people we admire and who are our stars tend to burst in flames. Even now, I run into people all the time to whom the notion that Gary Cooper might be a great actor, that John Wayne might be a great actor, is totally alien. They think that great acting is Laurence Olivier and that it's nothing else. Uh, that you're only a great actor if you're, in the broader sense of the phrase, a character actor. If every role you play looks different and acts different. They don't understand that for most of the great Hollywood actors, great acting consisted of creating a self. Might not be congruent with the real self, but nevertheless was the self that people saw. And bringing that self to every project in ways that are versatile and complex. I think by now most people do realize that Spencer Tracy was a great actor. But Wayne really is the pons asinorum. You would think by now that people would have figured out that the star of The Searchers isn't making an impression just because John Ford was a great director. But you still run into it all the time. A real inability to understand the different ways that one can be a great film actor. And it's different from stage acting. Yes, it is. And the way I explain this to people when I teach film is this. You run into people in your life, in school, work, in the street, sometimes you see somebody who reminds you of a screen actor. There's similarities of face, of motion, of voice, of laughter, of something. That's the first step, I think, that what the stars were really doing is presenting in an idealized way American society. The American types that were prevailing, that were in certain ways closer to American characters so that they are still recognizable and admirable generations later. There is something, if not permanent, and certainly long-lasting about them for that reason. They give you the best look as something that's just part of society, and you could see it less clearly, less polished, less properly put on show in any number of relationships or in events in reality. They were never that far. They were never really implausible. 
the stories were supposed to do that as well, to create characters that would really make sense of American experience. Yes. Clarify and just bring emotional intensity so that they also bring completeness. That at the end of the story you see, now I see, now I get it. This sort of thing ends this way. Wayne said once that he knew he wasn't the John Wayne of the screen, but he said, I've always played characters that I would have liked to be like. Now, that wasn't quite always true because occasionally he played characters like Ethan Edwards in The Searchers. But by and large, he did play people that he wanted to live up to. And we respond to that. Uh, Lee Marvin said exactly the opposite. He said he played characters and he wanted to show you why you shouldn't be like them. And he was fantastically good at that, too. But this wouldn't work unless those characters were not deeply rooted in the evidence of our own senses of reality. They are pieces of reality. They, sometimes they show us our best selves. Gary Cooper or Jimmy Stewart, they show us our best selves. Robert Mitchum, part of his greatness is he shows us all kinds of selves. And people who don't understand how movie acting works don't get that. But you've just got to remember, this is a guy who was capable of going from the story of G.I. Joe to Out of the Past to Night of the Hunter. Only a great actor could do that just because he didn't always live up to his talents. Just because he wasn't was sometimes very lazy doesn't mean that he wasn't a great actor. He had the stuff and it is all completely visible, never in an exhibitionistic way, but completely visible in Out of the Past. If he were to be remembered only by that role, he would still be admired and that's... Yes really what you can expect out of acting that's really what you can expect out of art it creates memorable things partly by idealization but ultimately because it tells truths we need to hear in a way that we are willing to accept mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in any one of us in his place might find excuses might find ways of passing the buck or ignoring certain failings or, or certain temptations but because we can see it in him we can see that what's admirable also comes with certain weaknesses and temptations that it could really really end tragically that it is a part of human nature as soon as we fall in love with the character and follow him we have to accept a certain responsibility in this sense an awareness or an understanding it really could happen this way it really must happen this way somewhere sometime to some people this too is part of our lives and that's why film noir lives today because we can all see ourselves in it uh, we can see ourselves and say there are but for the grace of god because the best of these films are so persuasively naturalistic and believable that we have no trouble imagining ourselves in like situations and failing to prevail, doing the wrong thing. They are great morality plays. Yes, exactly. And I suppose that in times of great national confidence, they will be in certain ways disfavored. But in all times when Americans realize that not everything ends up with happiness, not every happy end is believable then we begin again to respect the more tragic side of our storytelling and to be aware of the complexity in our character. Yeah. Just as neo-noir came back with Vietnam, it was the moment for this kind of filmmaking to return. Exactly. I think we can wrap on this note. It's I too. Uh, thank you again for a lovely conversation. Always. Get getting to revisit the movie and to think through it, not to say to learn so many things about it and its history. Always a pleasure, and let's do this again soon. Any old time. What a pleasure. All the best. And you as well. Mm -hmm.